Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and today we're going to be talking about a longtime favorite of mine, the 1965 Mario Bava sci-fi horror classic, Planet of the Vampires. And uh, I, I want to start off today by saying that I think perhaps this is the Paragon example of uh, a concept we've talked about on the show, the, the Rub the Fur movie, a movie that is... Uh, more about audiovisual texture than about the characters or the contents of the plot. And that that's absolutely the case here, because before we watched it again for today, I've probably watched Planet of the Vampires at least three or four times, a, a couple times without sound on, but uh, at least once with sound. And I honestly could not tell you much <laughs> about what happens in this movie, because whenever I watch it, to the extent that I'm paying attention. And it's a movie I kind of love to half pay attention to, but uh, to whatever extent I'm paying attention, the part of the mind that is engaged is not the semantic executive of the forebrain. It is some kind of abyssal lizard consciousness that, that is only in a realm of pure sensation and vibe and what a vibe this movie is. The, the sets, the lighting, the costumes are like a Baroque organ fugue just washing over your mind and body. 
Oh, I, I agree. Absolutely. On, on all counts. Because uh, first of all, obviously, this is a beautiful looking film, a beautiful sounding film, which uh, uh, we'll get into as well. But also, I, I'm in the same boat. I've, well, this is the second time I've watched this movie this year. Um, I watched it uh, just under a year ago uh, on an airplane. And, uh, and, and yeah, it, but before I'd rewatched it, uh, I don't think I would have really been able to tell you what the plot was aside from just the very basic strokes of, of what is obviously visually happening on the screen. I mean, I think it really does not help with plot comprehension that I can't tell most of the characters apart. Yes. <laughs> and I'm not even sure that's unintentional. I mean, I can recognize basically the main characters, the ones played by, uh, by Barry Sullivan and uh, and uh, Norma Bingle, but uh, a lot of the other characters. I mean, there are tons of just sci-fi crew members walking around in these identical costumes, which I love. The costumes are one of the greatest things about this movie, but they sort of hide all of the actors' identities and make it difficult to sort one character from another. So a guy walks into the frame wearing his. Uh, his like leather space child outfit and mm -hmm. uh, holding a ray gun and they say like oh hello and i'm like i don't know if this is the guy that was in the previous shot or not yeah yeah absolutely there's a there are a number of interchangeable guys in this yeah. film that are they just kind of move in and out in the background sometimes they're, they're playing important roles in the plot but yeah outside of the, the the two principal actors that we named i'm not really sure who anybody was uh, at any given time, unless they're really hammering it home for me. So for, for me, this movie is absolutely a vibe trip. It is a it is a huge mood uh, that and what's what goes on in the plot is not nearly as significant. Though, if you do pay attention to what happens in the plot, there are some other interesting relationships to other films that you can map out. Because while I don't think anybody would accuse Planet of the Vampires of being one of the best sci-fi horror movies ever made, I think it does appear to have been a major inspiration point for several of the other greatest sci-fi movies ever made, including uh, Alien, uh, Ridley Scott's original in 79, which I, I think many would probably say is is definitely in like top three, top five sci-fi horror movies of all time. And it is impossible not to notice the the overlap between this movie and Alien. But of course, with Planet of the Vampires coming much earlier. Right, right. And uh, I believe Dan O'Bannon even uh, made that connection as well, I think, when people ask him about it. Though, if memory serves, Ridley Scott was always like, I've never seen it, so I can't say. Oh, sure, Ridley. Okay. Well, anyway, I, I think you could play a really interesting game of comparing and contrasting the uh, the, the cinematography of these two movies, which are maybe you could say the main selling points in both cases. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas Ridley Scott has uh, a very clean cinematography style. Everything is very uh, clear and in many ways, very, the textures are realistic, but of course, uh, beautifully composed and, and the use of light and shadow and all that. But meanwhile, Mario Bava's movie looks like it takes place in a magical realm. Yeah, there is um, there is a stark unreality to uh, to, to a number of, of um, you know Mario Bava's pictures, and certainly that was the case with um, Black Sabbath, which we talked about previously on this show. Uh, but in in this film, yes, everything feels very detached from the earth world uh, and and with good reason i mean for starters uh, this is only a mild spoiler i think uh, depends on how you look at it i guess but uh, the, these are human characters played by human actors 
but they are not Terran humans. Uh, they are not from Earth. Uh, and ultimately, we don't really see them doing much. We don't see artifacts of Earth among their possessions. Um, it's very stripped down. There's a lot of uniformity, not only to, you know, how they're dressed, but also just uh, there, there's a there's a sort of a tidiness and a sterility to their their lives. And in the world that they've landed on, this abyssal uh, shadow realm, yeah, it's just uh, absolutely bonkers on a, in a, in a, from a visual sense. And there's another thing I would say about the 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 sets and the setting of this film, uh, which is that. Uh, th- though it's in many ways in line with things you would see in other sci-fi of the era, like Star Trek TV show, the original series and stuff. Uh, but there is a staginess to the sets that while they are, uh, while they are gorgeous and, and uh, intricately designed, they do not appear to be uh, trying to evoke reality. Instead, they're more like the set you would see in a very well-designed stage production. So it's like suggestive of real shapes and forms. I really enjoy comparing this film in my mind to a movie that came out the year prior, 1964, Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. <laughs> because, if, I mean, these are films on totally different ends of the spectrum in terms of um, of, of just how well they're executed, certainly from a visual uh, standpoint. Uh, this film is beautiful. Santa Claus versus the Martians is uh uh, you know, it's it's amusing. It's funny. It's for kids. Uh, but uh, but they're also comparable in a number of ways. You know, there's there is uniformity to create to making your humans uh, some some sort of a space species. Uh, you have these inv- these you're using sets to create both uh, uh, spaceship environments and um uh, you know terrestrial environments. We might compare the alien world of this film to say the. Um, uh, the the polar regions that are depicted in Santa Claus versus the Martians, and then also they both rely on that old trick of having a um, some sort of a tripod landing gear on your spaceship, and that way you can have the model shot, but then you can also incorporate it into your set because your characters are walking uh, amid the legs of the, the the landing legs of the vessel. That's right, and there's a lot of good uh, – so th- th- there's fun model work, but also good forced perspective sets where there will be a mm-hmm. – like a uh, miniature of uh, – clearly everything's actually just being shot pretty close to the camera, but there will be uh, miniatures of things taking place in the background while characters are like descending across a, a clearly just a ramp that's hidden by uh, some some rocks or spires or something in the foreground. And it's very good at – while not actually looking realistic, sort of intoxicatingly inviting you to suspend your disbelief. It it is not Mm. something that looks real, but you're all in on the environment because it's playful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Bava leans into the unreality of everything. And also, I would say that that Bava appears to to, to only do the things that they can do really well on the screen. And you don't see this film attempting to do things that it cannot do all that well. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. Uh, because it, you know, absolutely excels at lighting and, uh, and, and I mean, lighting is at least half of everything here. I mean, because, uh, there are times where you can tell, okay, in the background, yes, this is, this is a, some sort of a cardboard box with lights on it. Uh, but you don't notice it so much because of how it is, uh, you know, how everything is lit, um, and then just the integrity of the overall set. Yeah. Another thing I wanted to mention that I noticed on this rewatch 
was, uh, as I said, uh, several times I've watched the movie on mute with like music playing or, you know, mm-hmm. while I was hanging out with people or something. Uh, and th- there's a very different experience when you actually watch it with the soundtrack, not just yes. because you hear the lines and understand what's going on in the plot, but also it creates another layer of uh, a vibe, another bid for a, a different kind of sensory experience, which is, uh, I, I think the audio in this movie invites you to become hypnotized and go to sleep. There yes. are many just types of slow, repetitive, low-level sounds that go on kind of drones and hums and soft beeps and uh, the sounds of bubbling mud in the background and, and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. With this film, every time I have watched it or attempted to watch it, uh, I have fallen asleep multiple times. Uh, and that's not a, a slam on this movie. It's not saying this movie's boring or it's not interesting. It's I think it's 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 an exciting film in many respects and it's beautiful to look at. But not only does it have this visual sort of hypnotic, uh, you know, pulsating feel to it, much like you know, like other Bava films. Uh, this, yeah, the, the sounds here, the, the both the, the music, the the electrical, uh, the sort of the electronic sound effects, and then also just the the straight up um, uh, uh, sound work in the in the movie are all weirdly captivating. I mean, on, on one level. And we'll we'll credit the musician uh, in, in a bit here, but on one level, you do have some traditional mid '60s action movie music that occurs, but it, it occurs kind of sparingly. And for a lot of the the rest of the film, we do have like a deep ambient vibe going on, especially when they're on the ship. We get some nice ship humming going on, uh, electrical sounds here and there. And then, oh, I was uh, especially on this watch, I was really impressed by. Um, all the, the the sounds of of, of of footsteps and running in the ship. Yes. There's this yeah. this metallic clanking sound that um, that really resonated with me for some reason. Totally agree. In fact, in the very opening scene, when we're first uh, coming into the ship's command room, there is something that I at first thought was supposed to be a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. But then I later thought, well, it's either machinery or I think maybe it's just supposed to be the slow footfalls of Barry Sullivan's character as he wanders from station to station in this room looking over people's shoulders. Yeah, the footfalls are great. When they're on the ship, it's that metallic sound. Yeah. And then when they're out of the ship, it's kind of this uh, it's sand grating against metal sound. Yeah. Um, and and then there are also some scenes with kind of plastic or rubber sheeting that also has this tremendous uh, sound effect to it. And, and so I, I was thinking as I was watching this, I was like, okay, I, I'm not really someone who experiences ASMR, but I feel like this movie <laughs> gives me as close to the ASMR experience as, as I can personally imagine. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm same boat. I'm, I'm not an ASMR person, but, uh, but I can see what you're saying. It is a movie that comes pretty close to inducing an altered state of consciousness on its own. Just watching it kind of lulls you and puts you, it's almost like it synchronizes your brain waves to a different kind of rhythm. Yeah. And, and also Bava gives the scenes a lot of room to breathe. Yeah. Uh, uh, which, which I think also adds to this, um, uh, this tranquil feeling. Though at the same time, I don't want to overstate this movie and make it sound like it's Tarkovsky or something. I mean, mm-hmm. like, I 
in most ways, I would say that Planet of the Vampires is not a profound film. And it's also in most ways not a very exciting film, but it is a profound experience somehow, at least for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's yeah, it's certainly not trying to be anything profound either. It is uh it it's setting out to be the most gorgeous uh and stylish space horror film that it can be in the mid sixties. And uh getting to the, the the elevator pitch for this one, I would say you could just basically basically sum up Planet of the Vampires by saying it is the granddaddy of all space horror films. You look at Alien, Event Horizon, all those, and then you look at the old portrait of Planet of the Vampires and you say, ah, they they, they have its eyes. Yes. <laughs> uh, so the basic plot here, and we'll get into the more into the depths in a bit, but it concerns a pair of spaceships piloted again by non-Terran humanoids. And these ships um, are responding to a signal from a shadowy world with a dying sun. Uh, they end up getting stuck on the surface of said shadowy planet. This planet turns out to be a world of mystery, death, undeath, possession, and madness. Will they escape? You'll have to watch and find out. Tune in next time. <laughs> Let's hear that audio. Planet of the Vampires. Harboring a form of life worse than death. Planet of the Bloodless. Creatures who take men's bodies, but attack like vampires. I'll tell you this, if there are any intelligent creatures on this planet, they're our enemies. In this outer space world, the living dead try to escape into life. Salas. No, just his body. And I'm just one of many beings on this planet. And we're fighting to survive. It's imperative that our race continue to exist. We arranged for several of you to kill each other so that we could take over your bodies. You are our last chance. No, never. We'll all of us give up our lives to save our own race. All right. Uh, so this is our second Mario Bava film, but uh, just to mention the basics here, Mario Bava, Italian director, legendary Italian director who lived 1914 through 1980 with an unmistakable, obsessive, and phantasmagorical emphasis on visual composition. Um, like we've said before, a strong still, just any screen grab from a Bava film is instantly identifiable. Especially a, a certain distinctive use of colored gel lighting, yes. like a fond of uh, shining up on someone's face with like a purple light or a set that's lit with like a green light or something. Yeah. Like, and, and, you know, he, he did black and white films as well. Like uh, 1960s yeah. Black Sunday is black and white, though. Woo, he's one of these directors. Once you see him working with color, uh, how do you go to black and white? Black Sunday is great, though. That's a yeah. that's a more uh, darker, more serious uh, sort of witchcraft, witch hunting film. Yeah, most most of his films were more easily identifiable as as horror. He he didn't just do horror, but I think there are only two films that he did. I could be mistaken on this that that are classifiable as science fiction, and this is one of them. 
some of his best known movies, I think you would put in the Jalo uh, genre, like um, uh, Blood and Black Lace, mm-hmm. and uh, I think did he do Bay of Blood? A Bay he of did. Blood? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's uh, Blood. My memory is Blood and Black Lace is is pretty great looking, and Bay of Blood I recall being ugly and not it not making any sense as a Bava movie, and I didn't really like it. Blood and Black Lace. That's the one with Cameron Mitchell in it. Oh yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So Planet of the Vampires has all the touches that you might expect from Bava. Brilliant gothic colors, characters staring through portals and windows, lots of doors and windows. Uh, Like, this is a film that loves space doors, and the space doors are wonderful in it. People looking through glass at things. Mm -hmm. I, I always thought that was an interesting detail, like how much that happens in here. Yeah. Also, bright blood, uh, high style, and of course, just great lighting. Now, this one is based on a novel, a a novel by the author Renato uh, Pestrinero, who was born in 1933 and, if I'm not mistaken, is still alive. And um, I don't know that any of his works have been translated into English. I looked around. I couldn't find any. I could be wrong. Uh, But uh, he seems to have have written um, uh, books in Italian for, uh, for a number of decades. There's some kind of note in the credits about this being based on something that appeared in a serial. Am I wrong about that? Or is this a standalone novel? Um, My understanding is the novel One Night of 21 Hours, but we have to remind ourselves that back in this time period, sometimes novels would do this. Like uh, uh, even like big works like uh, Dune novels from Frank Herbert might be serialized initially before they're uh, published as a a complete novel. So it was just Mm -hmm. a different publishing uh, world back then. Uh, Certainly in the U.S. and I imagine in Italy as well. Now, the screenplay credits on the film beyond um, uh, the author we just mentioned, um, there are seven credits, including Bava himself. Ooh. And, um, you know. uh, uh, The (laughs) The more, the better. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, and if you want to read all of them, you can certainly look up the IMDb profile. uh, But I I thought we would mention a couple of them because they're, uh, like, I believe a couple of our Italian uh, screenwriters that Bob, uh, at least one that Bob had worked with on uh, on other films. Uh, A couple, I believe, are Spanish screenwriters. And then we also have uh, two uh, screenwriters come in for the English version. The first is Ib Melkor. Uh, who lived 1917 through 2015, Danish-American writer with some impressive credits. Uh, He wrote and directed 59's The Angry Red Planet uh, and 64's The Time Travelers. Uh, He was a co-screenwriter on Robinson Crusoe on Mars in 64, and his 1965 story The Racer was adapted into the 1975 Corman-produced Paul Bartel-directed movie Death Race 2000. Oh, wow. Uh, Melchor was also one of the writers behind the hilarious 1961 Danish kaiju movie, Reptilicus. Ha! I believe this one was covered on uh, MST3K. Oh, okay. I don't think I saw that one. More recent uh, MST3K. Oh, okay, yeah. All right, the other uh, screenwriter on the English version, uh, Louis M. Hayward, who lived 1920 through 2002. Um, had his hands in a number of bikini movie screenplays uh, back in the day, uh, but was also a producer on such films as both Dr. Fibes movies, The Vampire Lovers, The Oblong Box, Witchfinder General, and more. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. 
Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. All right, let's get into the cast. 
Uh, so uh, as previously mentioned, one of the two principal characters, uh, one of the characters that we actually can instantly identify, and this is in large part due to the fact that, well, I mean, he has a screen presence, he has a lot of screen time, and he's an older actor in this film, is Barry Sullivan playing Captain Mark Marcari. <laughs> Markery Mark and, and the Funky Crew. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, Barry Sullivan lived 1912 through 1994, American actor of TV and film, active from the 1930s up into the 1980s. Um, he was never, I think, a huge name, but he seems to have been like a very dependable hand in pictures for a very long stretch, sometimes uh, as the lead, but oftentimes, you know, as, as part of the extended cast. Some of his uh, other notable films include Cause for Alarm in 51, The Bad and the Beautiful in 52, and 1974's Earthquake. Mm. He pops up twice on Night Gallery, and he did at least one other horror movie, Pyro, The Thing Without a Face, uh, 1964 English-Spanish co-production. What? Did, Pyro, The Thing Without a Face? That seems like two different titles jammed together. Uh, yeah, I haven't seen it, so I can't really speak to it. <laughs> uh, but it looks like it has some sort of a creature effect or makeup effect going on in it. I'm not even sure if it's if it's Barry Sullivan in the, the creature effect stuff, but um, at any rate, he's in this film, and I think he's the lead. I don't know exactly what to say about Barry Sullivan in this movie, because on one hand, I feel inclined to be critical and call his performance extremely boring, but then again, <laughs> I don't know what I would change about it. Like, I, I don't know yep. how different this movie would be if you had a very uh, exciting actor giving a more lively performance in this role. And it, it might actually undercut some of the other things I like so much about it. Yeah, I was having the same experience because at first I was thinking like, oh man, Barry Sullivan is such a bore. Uh, why couldn't it have been Cameron Mitchell, for example, in this role? But then as I started as I continued watching it, um, I was really thinking, well, what would Cameron Mitchell have done differently? You know, this this character is what he is. He's He's very stoic. Um, you know, he's, uh, he's dry. He's the, he's in many ways, sort of the typical, uh, leading man hero that you would have in classic Hollywood films. He's a cool cu cucumber under pressure. And, uh, yeah, he's kind of like the dad of the picture. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, uh, ultimately I'm going to land on saying Barry Sullivan is good in this. If nothing else, you can you can set him apart from all the other male characters in the film because uh, most of the other male characters are kind of interchangeable. Now, one character I always did recognize is uh, the character Sonia, played by Norma Bengal. Yes, yes, very captivating screen presence, um, uh, you know, beautiful eyes. Uh, of course, dressed in stylish spacesuits the whole time. Uh, she lived 1935 through 2013. She was a Brazilian actor and musician and later director and producer, was a big star in Brazil, and that's where I think she was mostly active, though naturally she appears in some Italian films as well, obviously, um, because this is an Italian film. Uh, certainly outside of Brazil, uh, this is her best-known work. And, yeah, captivating, um, even if I would say the, uh, you know, she's still – uh, subject to the the reduced uh, ambient acting temperature of this movie. That's a good way of putting it. Yes, I would say the general temperature of the acting in this film is low, and that affects everyone, <laughs> whatever their individual charisma might be. And in other contexts, it's clear Norma Bingle has loads of charisma because she she also had a career as a singer. Uh, as I think you mentioned, and I was trying to find some of her music. Not a lot of it seems to be all that easy to access these days, but there's one record she put out 
that I must get a physical copy of if I can find it anywhere. It's a 1959 Bossa Nova album, uh, <laughs> and I dug up a few tracks from it. First of all, the album is called, you ready for the title? Yeah. It's Ooh Norma. <laughs> With, I think, uh, six or seven O's in the Ooh. Okay. Ooh Norma. And uh, the tracks I heard, I thought were just great, very smooth and rough at the same time, like a like a pat of butter melting on a crocodile's back. Uh, two thumbs up. Yeah, yeah. You sent me uh, some links to this. Uh, there's a cover of Fever on here that's quite nice. Um, some other tracks. Yeah, she does a song called Ho Ba La La. <laughs> I'd never heard that before, but it's great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yes, a solid bossa nova performance, in my opinion. I do take a little bossa nova from time to time. Um, uh, does to, anybody out there have a copy of this record? If you are a listener of our show and you own Ooh Norma, you must write us. Contact <laughs> at stufftoblowyourmind.com. I want to know all about this. All right. So we'll, we'll come back to her, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, but other actors in this, let's see. There's uh, Angel um, uh, Aranda. Uh, uh, this is uh, an actor playing the character Wes Weskent. Another wonderful name. This <laughs> is Mark Markery and Wes Weskent. We have to, these are all, you know, it's laying the seeds for the, uh, the reveal that these are not Earth humans. They're from somewhere yeah. else where they have different naming conventions. But anyway, this actor lived 1934 through 2000. Spanish actor. He was also in 1959's The Last Days of Pompeii and seems to have done a fair amount of westerns and sword and sandals sort of movies. I think this was a big time for sword and sandal movies in, uh, in, in Italy. Yeah. Uh, now we have another female character. Uh, in the film, another crew member. This is Tiona, played by the actor uh, Evie Marandi, who was born in 1941 and I think is still with us, a Greek actress that was active from around 1959 through 1974, did mostly thrillers and crime pictures. Uh, it also appears that she was in the Italian mass superhero film Goldface, the Fantastic Superman from 1967. I liked her in this too, not just because she was a person I could actually recognize, but uh, she's she's got cool big hair, which uh, complements the costumes well. So the costumes, maybe we'll get into this more when we get down to the costume designer credit, but the costumes have these collars mm -hmm. that look like Dracula capes. Did did you also make that connection? Um, I do when I you've pointed this out to me before and yeah. um and so I think about that when I look at the costume but at the same level I don't think I I ever put that together myself looking at these mm. costumes and I would I would I would say it's not overt it's not in a way where you're like whoa wacky space vampires you know I think they look pretty sleek well it's also because these characters are not the vampire characters they're the right. ones who are the victims of them uh, but yeah, they've got these, these very, very high collars that like come up past the back of their hairline and over their jaws. Yeah. And then they have these kind of skull caps that they, some, that they sometimes, wear sometimes yeah. and they have helmets that they also wear sometimes. But then also when Sonia and uh, Tiona, when they take their, their, their skull caps off, they both have just enormous, beautiful mid sixties hair. Yeah. <laughs> And so I think those, like the tall collars uh, on the characters, are somehow well complemented by any actors that have big hair. Yeah, and boy, do they ever enormous hair! Uh, now, uh, like I say, most of the the rest of the male characters in the film are interchangeable, but I, I'm going to mention mention a couple of them because they have connections to other films we've talked about. Uh, we have Stilio Candeli, uh, who plays either a character named Brad or Mud. 
um, <laughs> according to IMDb. Um, and again, I have to be honest, I do not know which character Brad or Mud was. I don't remember. But Candeli pops up in 1985's Hercules. This is the oh. one with Lou Ferrigno that we watched. Uh, he's also in 1985's Demons and 74's Nude for Satan. <laughs> wow, what a title. Um, do, you, do you think that got people into the theaters? <laughs> <laughs> Some theaters. Um, now, uh, we also have uh, the actor Ivan Rasimov as a character named Carter or Dervy. <laughs> um, <laughs> And this guy's interesting because he lived 1938 through 2003, Italian actor who played a lot of heavies. Uh, He was in Sergio Martino's All the Colors of the Dark from 72. Uh, He was in Bava's uh, 1977 film Shock. And he played Lord Growl in The Humanoid. Uh, That's the the off-brand Darth Vader in the Star Wars knockoff that we watched. Wow. Dervy Jones Locker. (laughs) All right. Well, let's get to some of the behind-the-scenes uh, uh, names here, just because this is this is very much uh, like you say. The texture of the film is so important. We have to discuss some of the the folks who brought that together. Yeah. Uh, first of all, we have uh, Gino uh, Maranozzi Jr., who lived 1920 through 1996, son of an of an Italian conductor and composer, uh, obviously of the same name, uh, Senior and Junior. Uh, but Junior worked in Italian and European film and TV. He also is credited with electronic effects on this film. And uh, again, those electronic effects are, are, are not isolated. They are found throughout the picture and are marvelous. I think I got even a hint of theremin at times. Ooh, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of beeping consoles and machinery inside the ships. Uh, and a great scene where they discover some derelict artifacts and uh and alien technology that has its own sound profiles like the uh you remember the the sonic or the the high voltage sonic locks and keys and the tu- mm-hmm. tuning fork yeah yeah anything interesting in this film even halfway interesting has a signature sound and if you hear a sound you're going to hear it again and pr- probably like somewhere between four to five times minimum yeah. Uh, which I think adds to this sort of hypnotic feel. It's like this is a, a movie that on some level is just playing with sound. But also my memory is that there's not a lot of music in this movie. I didn't uh, take specific notes on this, but my general impression is there are a lot of scenes that have no music and there's just ambient environmental sound. Yeah, yeah. There, there are long stretches of ambient sound, which I love. There are a few spikes of more traditional action music, but then there are also, like, say, the end credit music uh, is is rather nice and is mm-hmm. kind of a mix of these things. Like, it's creepy, uh, but it's not just pure electronic ambience by any stretch. Now, we've been gushing over the uh, the sets and the uh, and all in this film, so we should mention that the set decoration art direction credit goes to um, uh, Giorgio Giovanni, who lived nineteen twenty five through two thousand seven. We've mentioned them before because they're credited on Bava's Black Sabbath, uh, The Evil Eye, and uh, was also art director on 1986's The Name of the Rose and 1986's The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Oh, interesting. Man, Munchausen has, I I can see that connection. That also Mm -hmm. has some fantastic weird sets. Yeah. And I mean, certainly The Name of the Rose from 86 is, everything's very much based in in a specific medieval environment but mm-hmm. uh, beautiful sets in that movie as well and then costume designer we have uh gabriel mayer who uh, also did costumes on the stylish mario bava film danger uh diabolic from 1968 
I can see that connection. Now, we've been gushing about the costumes, but one thing that's worth admitting is there's not a great variety of costumes in this movie. Most of the characters for most of the movie are all wearing exactly the same thing, and yet I love these costumes. They're Mm -hmm. these full-body space leather or maybe fake leather, I don't know, vinyl or leather jumpsuits that have, uh, they're like black with yellow lining. And we mentioned that they have these very tall collars that come way up, like past the jaw, past the hairline in the back. And then sometimes these caps that go on that I believe have a kind of, uh, don't the cap, the leather caps have a kind of widow's peak to them? Like they come down a little bit in the forehead, almost like Dracula's hairline or something. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. Now that you mention it. Just tremendous. It's so good. Yeah, these costumes, uh, for one thing, you see them a lot. And I, you don't really see any flaws in them. You don't see the the costuminess shining through. And then also, everyone has one. And this gets into something I really liked about the film. Like, anything that exists in the film, there's a sense of um, of mass production to it. So mm, yeah. everyone has these costumes. Uh, when sometimes they wear the helmet, but the rest of the time you see multiple helmets, all identical, setting around. It's not just one space rifle like ray gun that they have, which is a, a great design, by the way, and especially with the sound effects, like sounds and feels clunky uh, and, and steel. Uh, but everybody will have one at, at different times, you know, and then there are multiple ones sitting around on racks. We also see this with some... Uh, uh, time detonator devices. When they go to fetch one, there's like you know three dozen of them or something in yes. the cabinet. And I don't know. There was something about that that felt like, like I don't know if it was like a mid '60s thing and realizing like the future is mass production, like the space age is mass production, and therefore you know anything that these these characters have, they're going to have a whole bunch of them, and they're all going to be alike. Yeah, the only thing that really differentiates the costumes for most of the movie is uh, they will have these little insignias that seem to indicate rank, like the number of Zs you have on your upper pectoral region is is like how what rank you are, I think. Now, there is one section in the middle, and I don't think this is explained at all, but suddenly our two main characters, at least, uh, Sanya and, uh, and Markari, are wearing different costumes. Like they're wearing orange and gray jumpsuits yes. instead of the traditional black. And I and I, every time I've watched it, I'm like, "What? What's happening? Yeah. Why are they? Why are you wearing different outfits? And these are fine jumpsuits. Don't get me oh, wrong. Great jumpsuits. They look kind of like the Running Man uniforms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I was wondering, sort of off offhand, I was like, "Well, why did they change jumpsuits? Are the other ones getting laundered? Is this the backup jumpsuit? Uh, I, I'm not sure, but it still I don't looks. I recall good. if they explain it. Yeah. Oh, and finally, uh, Carlo Rambaldi, who lived 1925 through 2012, was the model maker on this, a legend who worked on a number of films noted for designing E.T. and the mechanical head effects for the creatures in Alien. Mm. Uh, He was a creature creator on the 1984 Dune movie, so you know what that means. Uh, This guy was doing uh, sandworms or guild navigators or maybe both. Oh, Uh, did he make Edric for David Lynch? Maybe. Um, I, I didn't look up specifics on that. But, I mean, if you're creating creatures, like, you basically have two to choose from there. Uh, and that was, I guess, arguably the more extravagant design and uh, effect. Uh, but he also worked on The NeverEnding Story, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Frankenstein 80, Barbarella, uh, and many more. And sometimes he's just credited as Rambaldi. Oh, you know you've made it when you can just go by one name. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that's a heck of a resume because, like, 
basically every movie you named there has some pretty awesome models in it. Mm-hmm. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or... I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
All right, let's get let's get more into the plot of this baby. Okay, well, I think this is one of those movies where it might be kind of dull to try to recap the plot in a more granular way. So this is one of the ones where I, th- I think it makes more sense to summarize the whole thing briefly and then focus on some details that stood out and maybe some uh, interesting readings. So here's the uh, the sort of higher level plot rundown. You, you start with two deep space exploration vessels, the Galliot and the, uh, I think, this is the Greek word Argo, but I think they, they say Argus in the movie, don't they? Mm. So the crew members of this one are technically Argonauts. That would make sense, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, the Argus and the Galliot. They receive a signal from a distress beacon on a previously unexplored planet called Aura. And the two ships attempt to land, but as they're approaching the planet's surface, the crew members aboard the Argus, with the exception of Barry Sullivan, only Captain Markery is able to uh, resist this, they all seemingly go mad, or they become possessed or something. There's an invisible force that makes them start beating and choking each other. Yeah, obvious shades of uh, Event Horizon, which would, of course, come much later. Uh, Event Horizon, of course, was not shy about borrowing elements from other films. Yeah. And uh, eventually, Captain Markery discovers that a sufficient physical jolt breaks the trance, and the possessed crew members are then uh, beaten and returned (laughs) to their senses one by one. (laughs) So the Argus lands on the planet's surface, which is uh, an an infernal chaotic terrain of these jagged rocks and, and spire shapes, boiling bogs full of white mud, strange lights shining through the fog, and uh, and these hues of, of purple and yellow that very much recall the Verdulach. Mm-hmm. So it's another planet, but yeah, just Carpathian sorcery crackling through the atmosphere. And they discover that the other ship, the Galliot, has also successfully landed nearby. They originally didn't know its fate, but they see it in the distance. And so several crew members make an expedition across a simmering lake of mud to check on the crew of the Galliot. And when they arrive, they find the crew all dead, apparently having murdered each other in the same kind of frenzy that seized the crew of the Argus. So they conduct uh, field burials of the crew members that they can access, but there is one section of the ship, I think it's the command room of the ship, where they can't get in. The door is locked from the inside, and several bodies remain in there. They look at them through the glass, and they're like, okay, we have to go back to our ship to get a cutting torch to access the room. But upon returning, they find that the dead bodies have disappeared from the locked room, And uh, so uh, strange things start happening. Uh, Captain Markery decides that they have to escape the planet, but their ship can't take off because of damage, including damage to the so-called meteor rejector, which I love. It's a phrase that is said many times in an (laughs) object we look at over and over. It's like got these two little tubes that are connected on the top, kind of like a pair of binoculars. But I believe the function of this device is to allow the ship to travel through space without being smashed by rocks. It rejects the meteors. Yeah, yeah. And it's a cool cool looking bit of the, the set, a cool looking prop. Right. So they need some time for the engineer to finish repairs on the meteor rejector. Meanwhile, the surviving crew members start disappearing while out on watch and stuff, and uh, some start uh, giving reports that they've seen dead men from the Galliot up and walking around. There's one part where this is confirmed because uh, they open up one of the graves that they dug, and we can talk more about the graves in a minute because I love them, Mm -hmm. and they find nobody in there anymore. 
eventually, Captain Markery and Sonya, Sonya's Norma Bingle again, they investigate a weird find. There is a derelict ship of unknown origin, and around it are the skeletons of gigantic humanoid aliens. So they, the skeletons look human, but they would have been like 15 feet tall or something. Mm. And they conclude that this ship and these aliens, whoever they are, were also lured to the planet by the distress beacon, the same one they responded to, but ages ago, and were probably killed by whatever force is attacking them now. So obviously direct connections to alien right here. Yeah, lured to a planet by a distress beacon. You set down and investigate. There is a derelict ship of unknown origin with some kind of alien corpse inside, a skeleton that looks like it's been there for, for centuries, and uh, something on the planet killed the aliens who operated this ship. That That's the situation in Alien, and it's the situation in Planet of the Vampires, so it's a pretty strong similarity. And there are visual similarities, too, with, like, the way mm-hmm. the skeleton looks stretched out, like the engineer in Alien and, and the skeleton in uh, in Planet here. Yeah. Uh, and so, eventually, two crew members who had previously been thought dead show up on the ship, and they are soon revealed to be not their original selves, but dead bodies that have been reanimated and possessed by some kind of incorporeal beings native to the planet. Somehow, like... The native inhabitants of this planet, uh, it's almost suggested that because of the decline of their species, they've been reduced to a kind of ghost-like or wraith-like existence where they have no bodies of their own and must only and can only exist by occupying the more vital bodies of, of still living beings from a more vital planet. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're kind of like hungry ghosts. The planet Aura is dying because uh, the sun is fading, and the Distress Beacon was in fact designed to lure in aliens that they could possess and then steal their spacecraft to escape uh, the planet and, and find greener pastures elsewhere. So the remaining humans try to prevent this by blowing up the Galliot, and they succeed there and eventually escape on the Argus, with the only survivors being Markery, Sonya, and Wes, the engineer. But uh, spoiler for a twist coming... Markery and Sonya announce to Wes that they are actually also possessed by the invisible vampires of Aura, and they give a little speech. They say, uh, you know, they tell Wes, come along, merge with us. It's great. It's bliss. (laughs) And uh, uh, so Wes reacts by trying to destroy the ship. He attacks the meteor rejector once again. And he's killed in the process, but without a meteor rejector, the vampire versions of Markery and Sonya have no choice but to land at the nearest available planet, and they zoom in on the view screen, and what is the planet? It is Earth, we see, like North and South America. And so I guess, uh-oh, Earth is next. Yeah, this was, this was very exciting. And I think I'd actually forgotten about this twist from when I watched the film um, uh, just a little less than a year ago. Uh, and so... I was, uh, yeah, I was, I was excited by the, first of all, the dark twist here. We've talked about some other films from this era and how at times it feels like they were very hesitant to end things on a, on a, on a bummer note or on a dark note. And uh-huh. uh, this is certainly kind of a, a dark note because we have these, um, these like psychic parasitic aliens that have now can't, uh, can't go to the you know, technologically advanced planet. They have to come to this barbaric planet of earth. And, um, we get the, the the super zoom in and we see the city of New York. Uh, mm-hmm. I believe it's supposed to be New York. Much in the same way that we see some zoom ins of New York City in Santa Claus versus the Martians, by the way. <laughs> but 
um, I, I, part of me was a little um, disappointed that it was clear that this was a then modern day Earth that they were arriving at. Because for a second there, I was thinking, oh, what if they're about to arrive at uh, like truly um, like a prehistoric day? In, um, in in Earth's history, or you know, very early on in human history, and maybe because uh, they talk about uh, when the aliens are pitching their whole like "let us live inside you" thing, they're kind of like, well, you just have to reduce your will a little bit, and it's it's not like a, a like a parasitism. It's they're kind of making the case that it's more like symbiosis. And I was thinking, like, wouldn't that have been a nice twist if they if it's kind of revealed that what we are is due. Uh, to their interference, that like the you know the mystery of human consciousness is wrapped up in the fact that uh, psychic aliens from another world infiltrated our species at some yeah. uh, prior age in human evolution. We are the vampires. The vampires are our consciousness, or something. Yeah, yeah. But I guess instead it's supposed to be like 1960s New York, and they're going to show up there instead, which is fine. Which is fine. Not a criticism. They're going to go go dancing. <laughs> yeah, we don't need to see the, the. I'm glad they didn't try and actually film a sequel. Um, but uh, but yeah, this is a solid twist ending. I liked it a lot. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love. You transformed a hundred thousand miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay. Picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcasts. 
Limited availability in select areas. Visit ATT.com slash hypergig for details. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, there was something I just briefly wanted to mention. I was looking at a chapter in a book called Horror in Space, Critical Essays on a Film Subgenre, edited by Michelle Brittany from 2017. And uh, there's a chapter in this about space horror movies uh, that are specifically, quote, undead planets and vampiric dream worlds in outer space. This is by an author named Simon Bacon. Uh, uh, the, the top line title of the chapter is under the influence. Now it goes into a lot of, uh, complicated detail about like, uh, uh, postmodern theory of, of hyper reality based on Baudrillard and stuff. And I, I'm not going to go in depth on that. I just want to say that it, it's got a cool idea that basically that earth life and, uh, uh, our, our natural societies in a, in an industrialized, uh, world, a state in which we are constantly uh, hyper aroused by technology and media all around us that are presenting us uh, imagery and just a, a barrage of supernormal stimuli that creates a kind of Disneyland reality where the senses never come to rest. And as a result, we never experience something that feels like the real world, like we are alienated from a sense of uh, of baseline authentic reality by the fact that we are uh, that we're in a constant state of hyperstimulation and arousal. And it contrasts that with what is often shown to be uh, life aboard a spaceship in science fiction movies. So you can think about the slow tranquility of the scenes where characters are walking around in the command room as they're just flying through space. The, the, of course, space itself being without sound in it. That's a big part of it, you know, that, that it's just a, a very calming void. And in fact, in a lot of these sci-fi movies, characters literally go into a state of suspended animation. It's like an unnaturally tranquil condition where uh, that hyper-stimulated reality recedes, and you can almost approach a, a more authentic and real version of connection to the physical environment by going into the void of space. Uh, mm -hmm. So I, I thought that was interesting. But then the second half of it is that a lot of these space horror movies that involve a kind of vampiric entity in outer space, like a planet that wants to drain our life force or something like that, it often seems to work by 
taking those astronauts who have been rendered kind of tranquil and more in touch with a real baseline reality uh, by their space travels and trying to put them in these states of hyper excitement and arousal once again. Hmm. All right. So it's, it's almost like through space travel, they have uh, disconnected from the artificial world, become more in line with the underlying reality, kind of achieved sort of a, a space uh, Buddhahood. Uh, yeah. But now they're being like sucked back into the um, into, into into the material world, into the world of again all this supernormal stimuli, a world of desire and ravenous hunger. Yes, to use a very uh, cliched example, it's like by going into space, you essentially are able to unplug from the Matrix. Mm-hmm. And then there are all these movies that, in some way or other, there's a there's a monster in space, and what it wants you to do once you come within its influence is to kind of uh, use you, use your body, or use your brain to itself plug into your Matrix that you've just gotten out of. Hmm. All right. And so the argument here is these distant worlds are kind of a um, a way of holding the mirror up to Earth itself, to what yeah. our, our actual um, society and culture and media is doing to us. Yeah. So I, I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Uh, I, I like a good uh, uh, academic read on, a, on pictures like this, you know. <laughs> Uh, where clearly, and clearly, they they weren't intending to really make any statements on this sort of thing with Planet of the Vampires, uh, no more than Event Horizon was trying to. Yeah, I guess the argument in favor of theories like this would be that there is sort of uh, common uh, thoughts that people are having in a kind of uh, inarticulated or, or subconscious way that are coming through in these works of art and entertainment. Yeah, uh, I mean, the myth maybe. is popular because the myth is doing something, that it's yeah. uh, stirring certain thoughts. And sometimes there's a uniformity to the thoughts that are stirred by the myth. And so, yeah, it's all fair game to analyze exactly what is the collective experience of this story. Now, to jut off in a totally different direction, I want to mention how uh, how Rachel and I totally went down a labyrinthine rabbit hole trying to figure out the font of the opening credits of Planet of the Vampires. <laughs> because whatever it is, it's, first of all, beautiful. I love the design. And second, it seems to have made a, it or something like it seems to have become recently popular in the publishing industry. Rachel was looking at the screen. She said something like, I've read three books in the past year that had a cover with this font on it. And so we kind of uh, we kind of turned into that guy in Zodiac trying to track all this down and pin uh, and and much like Zodiac, the mad investigation had an inconclusive result. Turns out these books don't actually use all exactly the same font as the movie or as each other, but they all kind of look similar. And that look is an elegant uh, sans serif or only barely serifed all caps font that is a bit like hand lettering and it emits fumes of retro Hollywood. I think the closest real font we found to it was called Lydian, and you, so you can look that up and, and get a uh, close approximation, but not exactly. And then after the whole thing, I realized, in fact, this text might not even be a standard typeset at all. It might just be hand-painted lettering. I'm not sure. But either way, uh, it's gorgeous. And it uh, looking at these credits, it made me want to wear sunglasses indoors and like walk around the block with a Campari on the rocks. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I, sometimes I feel like I suffer from font blindness uh, and, and ultimately can't tell uh, some of these fonts from each other. But this, this is nice. These are nice fonts. I'll give you that. Also, can we talk about how spacious the command room in this ship is? 
Oh, it's enormous. It's like a um, it's like a, a TV um, church set or something. You know, it's um, bigger than my house. It's gigantic. <laughs> they, like there is just tons of open floor space with nothing in it. And I think about how that contrasts to a lot of other movies where the command room is very cramped. It's like seats right next to each other and these consoles directly in front of them. This command room is like a warehouse. Yeah. Like, yeah. You can compare this to say alien where everything is very cramped and uh, you certainly don't have wide open spaces in which characters could conceivably dance with one another. Um, I imagine some filmmakers of the day were, were probably asking, why is there not a dance number in this? Uh, well, but there is a well-choreographed fight scene in this big room. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I have to say, I was, sh- I was kind of shocked to, uh, to, to, to hear myself thinking this, but I dug the fight choreography in this film. Like, it's a lot of times from this era, the, the action is a little cowboy-esque, you know, uh, mm-hmm. when you're looking at U.S. and European films. Um, but there's something about the, the physicality in this that it feels like it's the right level. There's a, a scuffle kind of late in the film that's pretty well put together. And there's a moment early on when like the crew members are going crazy where one character, there are a couple characters on screen and then a character runs in from off screen with tremendous speed, uh, mm-hmm. attempting to like clobber or grapple somebody. And I think this is, this scene is accentuated by the sound of those metallic foot footfalls yeah. in the ship, but it's like that, 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 that whop. And there he is. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it feels very real. Now, another, uh, scene that stands out to me every time, and I know it stood out to you as well, that we've got to talk about is the scene where the buried crew members rise from the grave. Yes. So it, again, it's, it, you get, it's not really revealed at this point, I think, but you certainly get the inclination that, yeah, these are not normal earth humans because their burial practices, their field burials are weird. Um, it involves not just digging a pit and putting a cross at the top of it. No, they dig out a hole. They wrap the body in plastic, place the plastic wrap body in the hole, cover said hole or ditch with metal plating, and then erect a weird metal obelisk at the head of the grave. The obelisk looks like a cow tools version of a pocket knife saw. Yeah, and it's it's wonderfully weird. Like, it doesn't match up with with human religions and funeral traditions. So it's just like, like early on, you're just like, what, who are, what are they doing? Why, why is this what they do? And, and yeah, it adds a, and it's, it's enough like a, an actual grave and grave traditions that we can connect with it and we can connect with the undead stuff to follow. Uh, but it's, it's also just weird and inhuman. It's, it's wonderful. But the, the really, uh, I, I'm not sure exactly why this is, but the, the thing that makes the scene where the the bodies come out of the grave perfect for me is the clear plastic they're draped in Mm. because they rise up. They don't just like cut through it and then stand up. They stand up with the, with the plastic sheeting still wrapped around them and Ooh, it's, it's, it's chilling and it's beautiful. Yeah. This is one of my favorite scenes in the whole picture. Cause of course we have this hellish uh, lighting behind the entities as they rise. So it's, uh, you know, we already have this very atmospheric uh, feel to the environment. They're rising up in this, this plastic or rubber sheeting and we get the wonderful sound effects of that rubber uh, or plastic stretching and being ripped. Like when I look at the still, I can hear the sound. That's how strong mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. Um, and I think it. I think one of the things that works here is that on some level, I don't know if they intended this, but it's almost like it is a rebirth, uh, and it's in the plastic or rubber is like a birth call. 
that must then be ripped from the creatures before they can go forth and you know cause their mischief. Do you remember the scene later? Uh, this is another uh, undead reveal where uh, they're the crew members who come back and they're acting like the oh yeah we, sorry we we're still alive we were just somewhere else. Um, and you need to let us onto the ship now. And there's a moment where one of their vests gets knocked open, like the leather jumpsuit mm-hmm. comes open and you see his torso and it's just like gouged out and rotting. Yeah. And he quickly covers it back up. And somehow that felt like it was on the same frequency as the, as the clear plastic. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, Oh, some other shot. I mean, th- this is a film that's just filled with beautiful shots, so we can't, give credit you know do due diligence to all of them but oh some of the ones i loved i loved how uh there are scenes where characters are talking to each other through uh, essentially little screens um but uh at least some of these not all of them but i think some of these were created by simply having the character stand on the other side of a of a uh, like a plastic bubble mm-hmm. um which uh, which works really well. Uh, I don't know. I just uh, again, it's something coming back to Bava. Like Bava excels at having characters look through windows at each other or at the camera, and mm-hmm. so uh, here we have the technological version of that. You remember the face through the window in the Verdulac? Yeah, yeah. So, so definitely something to look for anytime you watch a Bava film. Now, how about that alien spaceship, though? Uh, Ooh, once we yeah. get to board that, uh, oh, there's all sorts of wonderful stuff. So this is the scene where uh, where Barry Sullivan and uh, Norma Bingle are wearing the gray and orange jumpsuits instead of the mm-hmm. black and yellow ones. And they, or I think it is, I'm pretty sure. Am I, I, right I believe that? that is right, yeah. Yeah. And so they go to investigate this derelict ship, and inside there are these gigantic skeletons, and there's purple lighting everywhere. Uh, things appear to be draped in, I don't even know what it is. It looks, again, I guess like clear plastic, but it, it doesn't read that way in the scene. It reads more like some kind of organic film that has been deposited there. And they're trying to understand the like the tools and the technology of the sterilic spaceship and they uh, don't actually figure it all out. I mean, they do get locked inside for a moment and they think they're going to suffocate and they have to figure out how to operate one of the, uh, one of the keys, the electronic keys that will open the door. But the problem is that you can't, their puny bodies can't handle these keys that they like get shocked by them. Yeah. Then there's this wonderful sequence where they're moving through, uh, I guess it's like several, uh, portholes. It, it's like concentric circles, and um, it has a spiral feel to it. The way that it's framed, uh, this is you know one of the more beautiful shots in the whole picture. That's their entrance into the space, the alien spaceship, and then of course they have to exit that way as well. Um, and I, like I think I said earlier, anytime a door is opening in this uh, this movie. Yeah, it's just in. I'm, I'm just enraptured, <laughs> like the the doors on the the uh, on, on the main spaceships, but also the doors on the alien spaceships. Like they they have a real weight to them. They feel like clunky and thick. Uh, I, I yeah, just was totally. I totally bought in on all the sets in this film. This movie makes me want to compose a list. Uh, I think I need to consult uh, consult with the audience here. Top ten all time. Uh, planet surface sets in sci-fi mm. movies. What What are your favorites? Oh wow! Like clearly sets, not uh, in, not uh, actual environments, not on oh. locations. 
Yeah, that does complicate it. I mean, I do like a planet surface set that's more stagey in the way that mm-hmm. this is, as opposed to just like finding a weird landscape actually outdoors on Earth and using that. Though that can be cool too in a more realistic yeah, yeah. movie. Yeah, both um, both work uh, or can work. Uh, like I, I know I've talked about this on the show before. Uh, oh, what's it called? The sequel to Prometheus. The the Alien Covenant. Alien Covenant. It, uh, a great example of a terrible movie that I just really liked for some reason, <laughs> despite it being bad. I recognize it's bad, but it it just it just works for me. Um, and the, I mean, the planet surface sets in that movie are great, though they're all I think outdoor sets. Well, I would not say that Alien Covenant is terrible. I would say <laughs> that Alien Covenant is a buffet, and yeah. you don't have to load your plate up with everything from the buffet. Uh, right. Just focus on the, um, the the tasty dessert treats. Uh, it, it is a buffet if a buffet included um, nachos, pizza, sushi, uh, beef tartare, uh, and uh, and ceviche all in the same place. <laughs> See, you don't have to load your plate up with all those things. But where were you going with that? Something about location? Oh, no. I was just talking about how it's a great example of, I mean, beautiful planet surface sets, but they're just like, mm. uh, I think, mostly – shot actually on earth surface they're just right, cool right. looking locations outdoors on earth oh yeah and of course star wars uh, the star wars franchise has long been great at this like find a unique environment and yeah. uh and it, it feels totally believable as an alien desert or a or a forest moon right all right well we're gonna go ahead and uh and call it there um i, I will say real quick if you want to watch this movie for yourself it is widely available um, as of this recording, you can stream it on Prime. It's just part of your Prime membership. That's how I watched it. Um, it's widely available on DVD, and Kino Lorber put out a very nice Blu-ray of this movie. Uh, is, that, is that what you watched it on, Joe? Do you have the blue? Yeah, I have the Blu-ray. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, check those out. Uh, definitely worth seeing in the the highest visual quality you can you can do. And I also have to say, yeah, the first time I watched it, I watched it on my iPhone uh, on, a, on an airplane, Mm-hmm. And that was fine, but uh, I enjoyed it much more on the big screen. Like some some films, you can you can watch on your iPhone, and you're not losing a lot. Like, uh, uh, but but this this is this is one that I think you need a, a nice big screen presentation. And hey, if you fall asleep while watching it, don't be ashamed. That's that's part of the vibe. That's just the movie doing its work. Um, oh, speaking of uh, rubbing the fur, uh, we, we we've said it enough. It's going to take on a physical reality. Uh, keep an eye on our merch store. We're working on some rub the fur merch. <laughs> Uh, nice. Well, we'll see how it comes together. Uh, let's see what else uh, to mention. Oh, yeah. If you uh, if you like the website Letterboxd, uh, you can check out the profile for Weird House Cinema there. It's just Weird House. Uh, so sign up there. Follow us there if that's your thing. Let us know what you think. Um, I can, Right now, it's just a list of the films that we've covered. But if people are interesting en- interested enough in it, we could do a little more there. Um, we'll see. And uh, yeah, this is Weird House Cinema. Uh, every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed, we're primarily a science podcast. But uh, one day a weekly, we like to set all that aside and just focus in on a weird and wonderful film such as this one. Huge thanks to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. 
The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.